Happy to be joined now, though, by uh, one of the best in the business, TSN uh, Senior Hockey Analyst, uh, Director of Scouting, Resident Scout and GM here at TSN TV and Radio. Craig Button joining me now. Craig, thanks so much for taking the time to do this on a, on a Monday. As I guess we kick off the work week here on TSN Toronto today. Yeah, we do. We do kick off a work week, uh, you know, but uh, things are good. Hope the same for you, Mark. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I didn't get the golf clubs out as much as I like this weekend, Craig, but you know what? That's besides the point. It's still work time for me. I'll get them out in the fall and uh, feel a lot happier about that. I want to start with you. Uh, with something that just concluded uh, recently, the Holenka Gretzky Cup, because I was reading one of your articles and watching one of your videos, and you suggested that there might be a couple of players that came from Team Canada on that under-18 uh, championship-winning team that might actually find their way to the World Juniors this year because of the, the offensive punch that they bring to the table. I love the World Juniors. I look forward to it every year. It's like it's on the calendar. It's, it's maybe my favorite hockey to watch in the year. What are the odds of seeing some of these under-18s maybe actually make it to the squad? Well, I mean, I'll start. I mean, the two players are Alexi Lafreniere and Dylan Cousins. And uh, I'll start with Alexi Lafreniere. I mean, he, he was a dominant player in the tournament. He uh, The tournament got more challenging and into the semifinal and the gold medal game. I mean, he, he, he was the best player. And he's shown that continuously throughout his career. He played last year at the under-18, or this previous April, I should say, at the under-18 championships in Russia. He was arguably one of the very best players in the tournament. Uh, you know, his 42 goals as a 16-year-old rookie in the Quebec League. Uh, he's the first 16-year-old rookie to do that since Sidney Crosby did it in 03-04. So you kind of start to put him in a different category of player. And he, he's not he's not intimidated by the spotlight. Uh, we know it's a 19-year-old tournament. I don't think there's any question about the World Junior being held in that regard. But to me, Alexis Lafreniere is... Forget about him being 17. Forget about all that. He, he to me, is one of Canada's very best goals. And so on that alone, uh, I'll be uh, I'll be surprised. Uh, I'll be shocked if he's not invited to the camp because he's that good. And then, and then it's up to him to, to make the selection cap. Dylan Cousins is a little bit different. Uh, I, I think he is at a depth that Canada has up the middle of the ice. And, and on the wing, it might on the right wing, it might be a little bit more difficult for him. But... When you watch what he did last year as a 16-year-old rookie, and then into the playoffs, I mean, he was a as a 16-year-old, he was a real catalyst for the Lethbridge Hurricanes. And then he goes to the Halinka uh, Gretzky, and, and and again he shows how how good he is. Now he's going to have to show well in the Canada Russia series and really play at the same level that he did at the conclusion of last year's season in the WHL. But I certainly believe that he has an opportunity uh, to, to be, you know, and we know Canada brings a smaller group of players, 28, 29, maybe 30 players to the camp in December. But I think he, he, he has an opportunity to show that he might be ready to, to, to earn a spot on that team. Now, how rare is this, Craig? How rare is it that, that the World Junior team would, would even consider a couple of underagers? And is it also a reflection on maybe the depth of that current year or that current roster? Because, you know, there are some years where, you know, Team Canada is the favorite, the dominating force, and there's other years where maybe some of our best players aren't even available to us. So uh, how often do we even see this? Well, it, it's rare. And again, it's rare because it's a 19-year-old tournament. But we saw it with Aaron Eckblad. We saw it with uh, Jonathan Drouin and Nathan McKinnon, two players that both participated uh, in the same year. And, and, and one of the biggest things is that Hockey Canada is going to look 
at a lot of different angles and a lot of different avenues to support a player's candidacy for this team and you know how you've played in previous tournaments are you able to handle the rigors and you know it's one thing to talk about nhl prospects and to talk about potential down the road this is about a tournament that's about what players give canada the best chance to compete for a gold medal for 10 days that's all it's about it's not about who the best player is going to be in the nhl or who's going to be the first overall pick or anything like that but i think both those players have shown that they can handle it. Now, they're going to have to continue to show. Uh, I think Lafreniere is just, uh, like, I really believe he's one of Canada's very best players. Is that about anything else? And But he's going to have to continue to show that. Dylan has a little bit more of a steeper hill to climb. And, uh, you know, that, but that's okay. Even just being in the discussion, I think, speaks volumes about him. But, you know, and, you know, one of the things that we found, Mark, too, now with the World Junior Tournament, it used to be Canada was without... Uh, a number of its best players. This is affecting all countries now. Every country comes into this tournament now missing uh, one, two, three players that uh, very well could give them a, a, a little bit better skill level, a little bit more depth. And I, I think that speaks to the quality of a player being produced and developed by other countries. And it also speaks to how tight the tournament is. And I think that that's what we've seen with the with the number of different uh, gold medal winners over the last, uh, you know, nine, eight, nine years. And, you know, we've we got five different countries that have won the gold medal. So it's a pretty close competition. Yeah, I, I, you know, I never even thought of it that way, and that's quite interesting because that was, you know, maybe a crutch that Team Canada pointed to uh, throughout the years, time and time again, when maybe things didn't shake down the way they want. Now, almost every country, as you as you mentioned, can point to that same crutch and say, "Hold on, we're missing a few bodies here as well." Um, switching gears a little bit, I guess, to the opposite end of the spectrum, Craig, from kids that are starting their career and getting ready to you know potentially enter the, the the pros in a few years from now Nicholas Cromwell has suggested this might be his last season and um, is that confirmed do we know for sure that this is going to be his last go around and where do you think he falls in the history because there's a deep history there of all-time greats and uh, what you know in terms of what he meant to this franchise where is he on the ladder well, you, you know, I guess to, 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 to the first question, I, I don't know. I think that, that, that players want to play as long as they feel that they can, and, and in a lot of cases, because they love doing that. You know, it's something that they've done very well for a long period of time. But, you know, as Jerome McGinley told me uh, at his uh, retirement celebration uh, here in, uh, just recently, he, he said that, yeah, when I was two years ago, I felt that, like, yeah, I'm going to play. I'm going to keep playing. And he said he'd never could uh, really understand why players, you know, are going to retire. But he said, then my, then my body stopped responding in certain areas and became more of a challenge. And it wasn't that I didn't want to play anymore. It's just my body wasn't going to allow me to play anymore. So I think, you know, you look at Nick, Nicholas Cronwall and you look at how hard he's played and how competitive he is. And then you look at some of the injuries. And at some point in time, uh, you know, it, kept, it, 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 all, it all converges where, you know, you as a competitor understand geez, I can't play at the same level anymore because I just can't. Even though I have the will and the desire, I just can't because I'm not physically capable of playing at that same level. And that forces players out. Listen, I don't think Nicholas Cronwell will ever be confused with a great player, but he was a key player. He was an important player on teams that were very successful because he added elements to the team that were essential to winning and essential to success. And, you know, though. 
teams and successful teams are made up of all different types of players. And you know, when you get when you get players contributing to their maximum uh, to their maximum potential and their maximum abilities, that's when you get a team that is you know where, where you can easily say the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And and, and I think Nicholas was was a, was a very good player that could move the puck along. He had a physical presence. He was a competitor. He was a good defender. And you know. You think about the Detroit Red Wings and you think about Swedish defensemen. I mean, there's been, there's been defensemen that were better than him. There were defensemen that were Hall of Famers and, and certainly, uh, were recognized as such. But I think if you ask players that played with Nicholas Cronwell uh, and played against them, you knew you were in for a really hard night when you were playing against Nicholas Cronwell because he was bringing everything he had to the game to help his team win. And you don't have the success and the longevity of the Nicholas Cronwell unless you have those elements. So I think he'll be recognized as a, as a real important player for those Red Wings teams uh, long, long into the future. We're with Craig Button, TSN hockey analyst and resident scout and GM. You follow him on Twitter at Craig J. Button. That's at Craig J. Button. Uh, Craig, I was in Scotland in July on a golf vacation, and my phone lit up, and it was from people who I work with throughout the U.S. on the PGA Tour radio team that are marginal hockey fans that found out that Tavares signing went through. And people were just giving me you know, messages from everywhere you would not expect hockey messages to come from, saying congratulations, the Cup's coming to Toronto, all these just great excitement. Obviously, we were very pumped. But are we overestimating how good Toronto is from a Leaf fan perspective, Hedy? into this season, are they even the favorite in the division, or is Tampa Bay still the best team? Here's what I would say to you, Mark. Like, you have to become a, a very good team before you can become a championship team, or even start considering yourself as a contender to be a champion. I think the Toronto Maple Leafs have clearly put themselves in that category. But every year, I think there's five or six teams that are in the same position as the Toronto Maple Leafs. And what you have to do is, is you have to you know, you know, play, and, and you have to play well, and you have to hone the different parts of your game. Then you need a certain measure of, of good fortune, and that's just that's just part and parcel of it. So, you, you think about the Washington Capitals, who won the President's Trophy two years consecutively before uh, this year, and you know they lose in the second round two years to the eventual Stanley Cup champions, and now oh, it's disappointment, and now the windows closed. They were still a very good team. It was just it was different in some ways, but they were able to compete and they were able to put up a hundred points again. And, and good teams put up a hundred points, not marginal teams, not near teams, good teams and teams that are capable. So I think that's the first step for the Toronto Maple Leafs, and I think they're there. But to start saying one team is clearly a Stanley Cup favorite over another when it, when you got Boston and you got the Tampa Bay Lightning and you know the Pittsburgh Penguins are still a good team. Then you look at Winnipeg and you look at Nashville. I put Toronto in that category, but and, and John Tavares puts them uh, in, into a spot with a really good elite player. So when you, when you have those elements, now you can now you can continue to push and try to strive to be a championship team. Listen, Mark, I think it's really important to be in the contest and to be in contention. And if you win one, or you win two, or you win three, or what. What you need to do is just be in contention. The Toronto Maple Leafs are in contention for the Stanley Cup, and I think they're going to be there for a number of years to come, but they're not the only team. 
Uh, Craig, uh, just before we let you go, I don't know if you had a chance to hear uh, Eric Lindros' comments from last week. He was speaking at a seminar about educations, about concussions and, and contact in sports and the future and how that unfolds. And he suggested that people could love hockey and that maybe hockey doesn't need contact. Maybe it starts at the minor hockey league level and eventually there's no contact in the NHL. We went out on Twitter today and asked our audience, do you need body contact to love NHL hockey the way you need body contact to way to love NFL football? Is, is it in the fabric as such where you just can't live without it? I'm curious as to your opinion on this, who has you know, been in the league at an executive level, has seen all different levels of competitive hockey, could you see a day where you could go into the future and there is no physical contact in hockey and it still be the same sport, or is this a non-starter to begin with? Well, number one, it's not a non-starter for me. I, uh, like, uh, I, I'm listen. We have science that, that is continuing to evolve about uh, the dangers of head contact and you know where are players ready to to handle you know body contact in in, in the game. So. I, for one, have been a proponent of zero contact with the head, accidental or anything, zero tolerance. It's automatically a penalty, and it's, and it's automatically a game misconduct. Uh, and I don't care about accidental or whatnot. I just think you got to slow the game down. So on that regard, I, like, I fully support that. In the IIHF, they are introducing rules this year for late hits. And we've had this context, this, the, the context of finishing your check in the game Oh, finish your check, finish your check. So you, it's a half a second or three quarters of a second. One constitutes a late hit. Well, now they're saying, unless you're engaging with the player to try to separate them from the puck simultaneously with the body contact, it will be considered a late hit and you will be penalized for it. I'm in full, I, I'm in full support of that because I think this whole idea of finishing your check has evolved to a point where it's become dangerous and it's created unnecessary injuries. And I think it has to change. So, to Eric's point about that, I, and I think that the way the game is played now since 2005 when the 0405 lockout ended, we're seeing a lot less body contact, but we're seeing more speed. We still see collisions. And so I, I think we're seeing a natural evolution, but I like what the IIHF, what IIHF is doing. You talk to players in the 70s, Mark, and, and, and they talk about the, this whole idea of finishing your check. They're like, where did this come from? And it came to, you know, more vigorous back-checking and, you know, players trying to play a different role. But guys, and I'm talking Hall of Fame players in the 70s, finishing your check, it was never around. So this idea that it's old school, it never was old school. Just go watch the game, and I know there's reasons for it, but at that point, I'm in full favor just finishing your check stuff. If you don't have the puck, you know, you're not eligible to be hit. I think it should be eliminated. Now, the other part of this, too, is I think if you're playing recreational hockey and you're not playing – high-level hockey at, at young ages, there should be no body contact. End of story. There should be no hitting. It should be recreational. It should be for fun. And you shouldn't put kids at risk. Because what you want to do is just have kids, the vast majority of kids, you want them to have a lifelong joy of playing hockey and participating in a sport. You don't want them to be dropping out because of the risk of injury. And I think that we have to really take a serious look at eliminating all body contact for non-competitive. And whatever that is, got to look at that hard. Because the science speaks. And I think the participation rates, particip- participation rates speak as well. Craig, thanks so much for taking the time to do this on a Monday. Really appreciate it. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more on all of that. It's going to be interesting to see if this naturally progresses the way that you've suggested and it continues to go this way and finds its way into the NHL. I sure hope so. So have a great week, Craig. Thanks so much. 
Yeah, thank you, Mark. Craig Button, uh, TSN hockey analyst, scout, and GM at Craig J Button at Craig J Button.